Kendall Bond Crimes Daily Debrief, everybody. We have reached the end of the first week of testimony in the Harvey Weinstein sex crimes trial here in New York. With me today are attorney David Ring, representing one of Weinstein's accusers. Attorneys Paula Natari and Michael Bryant are here for analysis. Dr. John Delator is here to discuss the testimony of a psychiatrist who said on the stand it is typical for a rape victim to remain in contact with her attacker. Testifying for the state against Harvey Weinstein, psychiatrist Barbara Ziv said victims almost always go back to their attackers. She called it the norm. Ziv also testified against comedian Bill Cosby in his sex crimes trial in Pennsylvania. Ziv said here it is a myth that victims run away from or distance themselves socially from their attackers. Prosecutor Jonah Luzzi said Ziv was there to testify about research, and Ziv said some 85% of reported sex crimes are between perpetrators and victims who know one another. Ziv also testified it is normal for sex crimes victims to wait years to come forward. The state noted that Ziv did not work directly with Weinstein witnesses. The defense called her testimony mere speculation into what really happened between Weinstein and the accusers testifying against him. Ziv's testimony comes one day after actress Annabella Sciorra testified Weinstein overpowered her and sexually assaulted her against her consent in her Manhattan home. And later today, actress Rosie Perez took the stand to back up Sciorra's claims. Actress Louise Godbold also accuses Weinstein of sexual misconduct. She joined us here in studio today at the Law and Crime Network to share her reaction to the testimony of fellow actress Annabella Sciorra. Very upsetting. Hearing the details of the rape, I think Annabella is incredibly courageous. I know that it took a lot out of her, uh, just even thinking about testifying. And you would not have known on the stand she was so composed, poised, almost regal. And it's also um, fairly common that people do not report. So I don't think she should be judged for that. I mean, she was behaving like very many survivors too. I mean, I told the person who was waiting for me, because obviously I came out of Harvey's hotel suite totally discombobulated, and I, he knew something was wrong. But I didn't tell very many other people in my life, especially my family, especially my mother. I wouldn't want to upset her. I wanted to put it all behind me, and I'm sure that Annabella felt the same way. Joining us first tonight is a psychologist, Dr. John Delator. Doctor, welcome to The Debrief. The prosecution called a witness with similar credentials and focus to your own. So we've heard from these accusers that Harvey Weinstein sexually attacked them, and yet they continued to talk with him, just trying to put it out of their minds. Does that ring true from your professional opinion? Oh, absolutely. The victims have a hard time kind of negotiating what exactly has happened. And because of that, and because of Harvey Weinstein's own behaviors, he's grooming and manipulating them into believing that it's probably somehow their fault. So why not continue to talk to this man when it's uh, my own fault for, having, for him having done this? Do you agree or disagree with the testimony we recapped from psychiatrist Barbara Ziv? Is the number as high as 85% when it comes to attackers and victims who know one another? I would probably even say it's pretty high, higher, higher than even that. I would say probably 90 to 95% the victim knew their attacker at least 24 hours previously. Anything else that jumps out with you as you've listened to the testimony today? This is going to be a critical part of the trial. Is it a critical part towards healing for these accusers to come forward? 
Oh, it's a huge step in their overall healing. My hope is that a lot of these victims have already done their own victim work, but I think it's also going to be important for Harvey Weinstein to hear just the impact and the long-term consequences that his behaviors have had on these victims. Certainly. And as you listen to the testimony roll along in this case, what's your overall professional assessment of where this is going? Uh, I would love to hear what defense um, what defense experts are going to say about his overall behavior. There's a lot of stuff that's going on here that leads me to think that he's engaging in some kind of paraphilic disorder. So I want to hear what a defense expert is going to say about what he's actually doing. I think we all have the same questions. Thank you very much, Dr. Delator. We're going to move now to attorney David Ring, who represents one of Weinstein's accusers in a recently filed California prosecution. David, you have a stake in this, but did the state really need to call Rosie Perez and model Kara Young as corroborating witnesses to back up Annabella Sciorra today? Absolutely. I mean, and they did it because the defense uh, challenged Annabella Sciorra by saying, well, you never told anybody. You, this is that you suddenly told told people about this rape 20 years later or however long it was. And so the prosecution calls Rosie Perez, who testifies, you know what? She did tell me something about this. She didn't give me all the gruesome details, but she told me about this. And I realized there were, that she was telling me about this. That's highly important and relevant for the jury to hear that. Now, different states have different rules as far as how far you can go in bolstering. Do you anticipate a similar procedure there in California as to what we're seeing in New York? Well, it's tough to say. Right now, there's there's two victims that, that Weinstein is charged with, criminally charged with, here in, in Los Angeles, and there's no so-called Molyneux victims or Me Too victims or, or pattern witnesses. Now, that might change. They may definitely add some as time goes on. A private investigator testified that Weinstein spoke to him a couple of years ago to claim that he feared, this is Weinstein, feared Ciara was going to extort his money. So is that coupled with the talk show interview where Ciara said she lied about things in general enough to destroy her credibility to the point the jury won't believe her? Or does the jury believe her? I know that you're not on the jury, but what do you make of all this evidence coming in? Oh, good Lord. Good Lord. You know, I think it was a desperate move for the defense to play that clip from her being on some talk show and saying, oh, I make up stories all the time about my family. Give me a break. That went nowhere. And I think it was insulting. And I think the jury probably rolled their eyes at, at that desperate attempt to say she's a liar about everything in her life. Well, look, that's certainly possible. And, and certainly the prosecution can get up there and say there's a difference between cracking jokes in a late night talk show and taking an oath and sitting on the witness stand. So as much as you can, David, uh, tell us what you're learning as you prepare your client for a likely Los Angeles trial coming up. Well, let's be clear. You know, I'm not the prosecutor out here in Los Angeles. I represent uh, this victim as what's called Marcy's right. She has a right to a private lawyer to help guide her through the criminal process. And so that's my role here. But um, basically, you know, what's going to happen is regardless of whatever the outcome is in New York, whether he is acquitted or convicted and sentenced to prison, there will be a criminal prosecution in Los Angeles and the uh, victim that I represent will be at the center of it. And hopefully we'll have cameras there so that we can watch it more closely. David, we'll see you at the end of the broadcast. Let's turn now to our group of attorneys not involved with the case in-house. Michael Bryant, Paula Notori here in studio. So, Paula, let's go back to this bolstering situation because not only did we have the accuser there to help bolster the two accusers whose 
accusations are the core of the New York case, but now we have, now we're bolstering the bolstering witness for the two accusers. How far do we go down this chain in New York? Well, I think that we, we're going to stop with, with the Rosie Perez and, and, you know, I think that's, I don't think the judge will allow more than that, but I think it's critical that the judge allow this because, you know, if you, if you had any doubts about Annabelle Shore, I mean, I personally think, you know, she was a, a pretty high celebrity, I don't know, A-lister, B-lister, and, and the fact that, you know, now we have Rosie Perez, and everyone pretty much knows Rosie Perez, she's like a household name, very beloved by New Yorkers, and um, I think it was a really bad day for the defense, having Rosie Perez testify. Michael Bryant, your thoughts. Where does the defense go from here? Does the defense have enough to attack this chain of evidence coming in? Well, you know, they're going to wait and lay out all of the post-event connections between the accusers and Harvey Weinstein because common sense tells you there's no way you maintain a relationship, even a friendly, almost loving relationship, with somebody who has raped you, with somebody who has abused you. That's where they're going. And certainly we have heard from at least some experts that say, no, that is exactly what happened. So if the jury's crediting all of this, the prosecution scored big wins. Let's move now to the case of troubled NFL wide receiver Antonio Brown. He's turned himself in to face a Florida felony charge. Authorities swore out a warrant for Brown's arrest yesterday after they say he and his trainer got into a fight with the crew of a moving truck. The crew demanded payment before unloading Brown's belongings, but he refused to pay, so the crew left. In the process, Brown is accused of throwing a rock at the truck. The crew got out, demanded payment again, and said, you owe us extra money for damage to the truck. That is when Brown and his trainer are accused of taking property off the truck, which wasn't theirs, and attacking the driver. Brown is out on the streets after posting a $110,000 bond there in Florida. Prosecutors said Antonio Brown's legal intent was different from that of his trainer, Glenn Holt. The state asked for the high bond amount with these arguments. The state does believe that Mr. Brown poses a danger to the community at this time. Uh, I can advise the court, and I've been advised uh, the Hollywood police have been called to his home approximately 18 times since December. There's escalating issues, um, even uh, recent issues of uh, hostility towards law enforcement, towards family. Your Honor, I can uh, advise the court. Uh, th there's been behavior by Mr. Brown that is, uh, uh, shows instability, a lack of predictability. Uh, even, I can tell Your Honor, two people close to uh, Mr. Brown, his agent, the mother of his children, that know Mr. Brown better than any of us, have made public statements recently voicing concerns about his mental health and that wishing that he would seek help. Um, I have those concerns as well, and I'm concerned about his behavior going forward. Law enforcement have received multiple phone calls from different attorneys talking about how Mr. Brown wishes to surrender himself, and he didn't. Every time, uh, and that's why, frankly, my understanding is SWAT or Fugitive Task Force wasn't used because law enforcement kept getting told he's going to surrender himself. And then apparently he changes his mind because he didn't until last night. And just because he surrendered himself last night doesn't mean that he doesn't present a flight risk going forward. And as far as his family, frankly, with the amount of financial resources he has, he could certainly take his family with him if he, so, if he chose to. And we will continue to follow that case as it moves forward. Still ahead tonight, though, here on The Debrief, we're back to the Florida trial of a man accused of killing his mother and his brothers. A jailhouse snitch says fellow inmates feared this defendant was a witch. That testimony is right after this break.
Let's head now to testimony in the Florida case of a man accused of killing his mother and his brothers. Prosecutors in Pensacola are seeking the death penalty against Donald Hartung. Initial reports suggested the killings were somehow related to the Wicca religion, a blue moon, or perhaps even Native American rituals. Investigators described a bloody crime scene here at the home where the victims were stabbed, beaten, and shot. Investigators later searched Donald Hartung's house and inside found some unusual things, which again brought this case back to a possible religious motive. Marlon Purifoy, however, was in the same jail pod as the defendant in 2016. He claims other inmates thought the defendant was a witch. Purifoy says he and the defendant were talking about the Wicca religion when Hartung started to tell him about the murders. Purifoy himself was sentenced to some 30 years in prison for beating his girlfriend with a hammer. Yeah, he told me. Okay. And did he tell you who killed his mother and two brothers? He said he killed them. Did he tell you why? He said he want, he, he want the money because she left him out the wheel. So if he was mad at his mom, why not just kill his mom? Why the two brothers? Because the money would go to, uh, to, the, to the brothers because he was never in the wheel. He told me uh, the, two, the brothers' uh, granddad had worked at Goodyear. And, you know what I'm saying? And the granddad left them a lot of money, left the dad a lot of money. When the dad passed, the sons them got the money and stuff. Now, did he tell you if um, the murders were, was it just something that kind of happened or was it something he'd been thinking about? Well, he said he'd been playing it last, last three, like three to four years. He said Ouija board made him go overboard though. The what, I'm sorry? A Ouija board. What about a Ouija board? He said that really made him do it, made him go overboard. After that alleged confession, Hartung apparently told his cellmate these gruesome details about the murders. When he went over there, he said he left his dog, Zena, because he knew what he was going to do. So he left the dog over there, then he went over there and cooked. Okay, did he tell you what he cooked? He said he cooked chicken and corn, I think screen beans or something like that, and biscuits. He said he went and took some cameras down, because his mother got hurt one time. She fell, and I guess the brother Richard had installed some cameras. He took them down. They ate. And then what happened after they ate? He said he killed his brother after that, okay. which is John. He said he hit him in the head from behind and cut his throat. Did he tell you what he hit him with? I think he said a hammer, I can't recall. And then did you say he slit his throat? He said his throat, I cut his throat. Um, did he tell you what he did after he um, did that to John? He went to his mother, then he, he tortured her so she can tell the uh, accommodation for the safes and stuff. He said he tortured her, I'm sorry? He tortured her. How? He cut a, a left pinky finger so he can tell the combination for the safes and stuff. She told him what it was in a black purse. Then he said he hit her in the head and slit her throat. He said he went in and got the stuff, like money out of the, uh, the safe and stuff. He said there was a safe in his mom's room? Yeah, in the closet. He waited till Richard came home. And, you know, Richard, he said Richard always come through the back door and he shot Richard. But he said he didn't, like, it didn't kill him, it didn't kill him, so he, Richard put up a struggle. He said he, uh, he cut Richard, cut Richard's throat and stuff. Did he say why he had to use a gun? He said Richard was big, like 300 pounds, and plus he, he's like worked for Homeland Security. That informant claims Hartung said he not only killed his family for the money, Hartung allegedly also said he was mad at his mother for not stopping his brother John from molesting his son. On cross-examination, the defense tried to point out inconsistencies in Purifoy's statements. His mother got mad. He got mad because when the son told him, he told the mother and the mother didn't believe him. Then you also said that uh, Mr. Hartung was mad at John for molesting Mr. Hartung's son, correct? Yeah, he's mad at his brother, molesting his, uh, his son, messing with his son. But not mad at Richard? No, I'm not mad at Richard. And then you also said that 
the the Ouija board made him do it. Yeah, that's what he told me. The motive was either money or it was that he was mad at his mom and his brother or it was because the Ouija board told him to do it. He was, it was about the money because he always liked to brag. Like he's going to go to Miami and stuff, hang out with some girls and stuff. But from what you testified to, there were three different motives. He said the Ouija board like, took him over the edge to go ahead and do it. And you testified earlier that Mr. Hartung was angry because his mother had written Mr. Hartung's son out of the will. No, written both of them out of the will, him and his son. Okay. Do you recall this interview that you gave on May 4th right. in 2016? Mm -hmm. And at that time you said he was, in your words, really pissed because his mother wrote Don Jr. out of the will. Yeah, it was both of them, though. Okay, but that's not what you said in that first interview, correct? I can't recall. It's been like four years ago. The state called the lead case agent back to the stand in an attempt to confirm the intimate details of the jailhouse informant's story. When was Marlon Purifoy interviewed? May and June of 2016. When Marlon Purifoy was interviewed in 2016, did he talk about the safe in the mom's closet? Yes, he did. Did you know about that safe until Marlon told you? No, I did not. And until you interviewed Marlon Purifoy, did you know anything about safe combinations in a purse? No. Did you attend the autopsy of Richard, John, and Von Seal Smith? Yes. And so were you familiar with the... Um, injury to Von Sill's pinky? Yes, I was. Okay. Is any kind of torture mentioned in any of the reports in this case? No. Did the medical examiner's report give any indication of how that injury even occurred? Um, it, it mentioned a defensive wound. The state then called the defendant's son to address the claim that he had been molested by his uncle. Yo, you're talking about from when I was a child? Yes. Uh, yeah, there was a situation with the job when I was a kid. Um, he exposed himself to me when I was a child, and uh, I had brought it up to my mom probably a couple of days later. And because of that, uh, I ripped it for him between them. I don't think they, I, don't, I mean, I was a kid at the time, so yes, I don't know sir. what happened behind closed doors, but um, I know they didn't talk for a good period of time. Okay. And I know at some point in time, they, everybody moved to Pensacola. Uh, my grandparents, my grandparents, and John Archie and all of them. Okay. And I, I'm, I apologize. You said that John exposed himself to you yes. when you were a child. Yes. And you told your dad? I told my mom about it. Okay. And yeah. then did your mom tell your dad? Yes. Okay. And then did dad go to your grandmother? I believe so, yes. Okay. And then whose side did um, your grandmother appear to take? Oh, she, uh, she took John's side. Okay. It's pretty obvious. Do you remember about how old... John was at the time. I th I'd like to say they're 10 to 12 years older than me. So if I was forced, they would have been teenagers at that okay. point in time. Let's bring our guests in to wrap things up tonight. Dr. John Delator, I got to ask you this as to the jailhouse snitch. Why, when people are arrested, do they feel this burning urge to share their cases with someone in jail they don't know? What's behind that? They can't help it. They 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 need to, to they need to demonstrate why they're there, and their stories have to be harder or more fantastic than the other person's story. That's why. 
Okay, I mean, and, and look at where it ends them because the jailhouse informants don't need Miranda warnings. They can just get up there and testify. The question is, does the jury believe it? Dr. Delator, appreciate your insight on the debrief tonight. Let's turn now to the rest of our guests joining us tonight, the three attorneys. David Ring, I'll start with you. Do you believe this uh, jailhouse informant here, uh, Attorney Ring, or do you think he's telling a story? Or was there enough uh, corroboration there to uh, basically believe what he said? Well, in this particular case, this informant, he has a lot of details, and he has a lot of details that were not made out into the, the public. That, that How would he have known about certain details he testified about unless the defendant told him? Now, look, the, the defense is going to attack him. This is not a, a, a nice guy. This guy tried to kill his girlfriend and got 30 years for it. Um, so they're going to have some some issues with him and that they can bring up with the jury to question his credibility, but but overall, I, I find him very credible. You know, I, I'm starting to believe the story here, and uh, Paula, I, I'm interested to, to hear your take. Uh, was this uh, too much collateral matter testimony, or do you think this was absolutely necessary to get to the root of the issue of who actually committed these killings? Well, I, I think that um, I typically do not like jailhouse snitches, but this jailhouse snitch and the detail that he provided, I mean, he gave details about what he cooked, what Hartung cooked for dinner, chicken, biscuits. He gave details about where, things that, that he would never know, things that are probably not even part of the case files. The fact that the grandfather worked for Goodyear. Um, he, he talks about the name of the dog. I mean, he just was telling it as if it was, you could see him you know, um, interviewing this guy and, and telling the story, and I just found him to be extremely credible, and I think the defense is really going to have to explain how he could have known this information. Yes, I, I'm starting to agree here. It seems like we're in agreement on some of this. Michael Bryant, is Florida one of the states where you can kill somebody and still take under the will? Because they're making a big deal about the will in a lot of states. If you kill somebody, you can't take under the will. Yeah. I mean, that's the majority of states. Why? Because it makes perfect sense. How can you profit from your crimes? That's exactly what would happen. I find that highly unlikely. That's why I think it was so interesting that the son took the stand and explained, you know, this is 800 grand we're talking about here. Yeah, I mean, uh, the, the motive isn't a lot of money, but apparently it's enough motive for prosecutors to get it into court. Thanks a lot for the discussion here from the panelists. We'll be back with you on Monday. Have a good weekend.